Let us pray. Gracious God, be with us today. We pray as we study your holy word. We pray that we would learn something new about what it means to be a Christian today and that we'd find fresh resolve, insight, and courage to follow the path that leads to life. It's in Jesus's name we pray. Amen. All right, so as we dive into Romans 12, I'm going to do my best to do less teaching uh, as we move deeper into Romans, because we're now beginning this new section, which is really all about the ethical implications of what's been discussed in Romans 1 through 11. So you might recall that at the beginning of the study, I said that Romans, for the most part, divides up into four pretty neat parts, that chapters 1 through 4 make a section, that there's a different logic to 5 through 8, We've just finished 9 through 11, and now as we go into chapter 12, um, this really is the, the section that speaks to the question, well, how then shall we live, right? And so after establishing how one attains righteousness, which again for Paul is covenantal membership, Paul has been adamant that one becomes a part of the covenant, that the covenant has always been about grace, and not necessarily through law or works. And so faith and baptism and grace, this is how one becomes a member of the covenant. This is how one is moved from Adam to Christ. But now Paul needs to turn his attention to what life in Christ looks like or what some others might just call Christian ethics. Uh, and so let's start with chapter, with verse one. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members and not all the members have the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually we are members one of another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, prophecy and proportion to faith, ministry and ministering, the teacher and teaching, the exhorter and exhortation, the giver and generosity, the leader and diligence, the compassionate and cheerfulness. So as we kind of dive into the application section of Romans, uh, it's helpful to be reminded that part of Paul's theological worldview is that Jesus has offered himself as a sacrifice. He's spoken openly about the atonement and about the work that happens on the cross. And now it's as if insane, in the same way that the body of Jesus was offered as a sacrifice, Paul points to the Gentiles and the Jews who have been baptized and say, you are that body. You are now to um, manifest and to exhibit uh, the same sacrifice our Lord made, that at the heart of an understanding of the Christian life is that we 
present our bodies as a living sacrifice in the same way that our Lord did. And so at the heart of Paul's vision for what it means to be a Christian is that in the same way that Jesus emptied himself and took the form of a slave, uh, as he says in Philippians chapter two, that we are to empty ourselves for one another in love, to take the posture of a servant and that this is what God considers to be holy and acceptable. And notice, this is not something really that you can prescribe with a law, right? Um, as we think about the law being in the background, the law that says thou shalt do this or thou shalt not do this. Here, Paul basically says love is the fulfillment of the law. He's already said that, or I'm sorry, he's actually going to say that in Romans 13. But now he basically says, okay, I've taken away law as the basis of covenantal membership and even as the basis of ethics. And what I'm going to offer in its place is this vision of through the power of the spirit, offering yourself as a sacrifice. And notice um, when Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, we're meant to understand that the world and, and being conformed to the world would not have us offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, right? The world says, save your own neck. The world says, accumulate all you can for yourself. The world says, uh, consider your brother and sister an enemy unless he or she is an ally who can help you get something you want. And Paul says, don't be conformed to that nonsense. Don't be conformed to that way of thinking, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And, and for Paul, the mind and its renewal is central to his understanding of sanctification. We remember what he said in Romans 121 about those who have succumbed to idolatry. He says, their senseless minds were darkened. And, and so to be in Adam is to have a senseless, darkened mind. And what's required is a renewal of our mind. And uh, even though I can't speak to the tense of that verb, uh, maybe Philip in a bit can chime in. Uh, I, I do think that Paul understands the renewing of the mind to be a daily, hourly, habitual activity. Uh, as the hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. The mind is prone to wander away. The mind is prone to be conformed to this world. And so this renewing of our mind is a daily activity, an hourly activity, and it is the mechanism through which we discern the will of God. And so again, notice the will of God cannot be contained in the law. Rather, the will of God is discerned as we have our minds renewed and as we commit to being the living sacrifice that is the body of Christ. Um, and so there's a lot there in verses one and two of Romans 12. Um, in verse three, uh, Paul reminds the church at Rome not to think of themselves more highly than they ought to think. Um, we recall from last week that we have, you know, Gentiles vaunting themselves over the branches um, Gentiles thinking that maybe they're better than God's original people, the Jews, or maybe Jews thinking these Gentiles are a bunch of latecomers who don't understand our customs. And, and Paul has gone to great lengths in 
Romans 9 through 11 to basically speak to Jew and Gentile alike to say, it is only by grace that you are a member of the covenant, whether you're a grafted in branch or considered the root of the tree itself, that either way, uh, it is uh, a gift and a calling of God that is irrevocable that's been granted to you, not something you've done yourself. And so when Paul says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, it's again his riff on an understanding that it is by grace and God's call that any of us are able to say, I am a member of the covenant. I am an adopted son and daughter of God. And so after telling um, the church at Rome who they're not, right, they're not people who are to conform to this world. They're not people who get to think of themselves as more special than others. Uh, they're not people who um, get to kind of be out for themselves. He then tells us who we are, right? Paul's already told us who we're not. Now he's saying, this is who you are. He says, you're one body and you're members of one body. And in the same way in your human body that all the different members don't have the same function, the hand isn't the head, isn't the foot, that you all have different functions. Here, Paul is asking us to respect and to think uh, with the charitable spirit about difference. And so in the background of this, right, you've got Jews and Gentiles in and of themselves kind of um, miles apart. In fact, in Ephesians, uh, Paul even says that Jew and Gentile are so different that they've been separated by a wall of hostility. And so there's a lot of difference between Jew and Gentile, but even within the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians, there's a lot of difference. And here Paul wants them to think with the charitable spirit about that difference. He says that difference is necessary. That difference is good and beautiful and makes the body of Christ what it is. And in today's world where we are so suspicious of difference and so intolerant of difference, and we can't tolerate it, um, frankly, as a society. Uh, we have confused unity with uh, uniformity. We think that we all have to be the same to be one. And Paul says, that's a bunch of nonsense. Uh, you are one body, but you're all different members. Uh, we all have different functions. We have gifts that differ. And um, in verse five, when he says, individually, we are members one of another, I think here, Paul actually states the paradox of being a human being, of being a Christian. On the one hand, he does, that, he does use that word individually. Um, there is something unique about you. Uh, there's something unique about Philip and, and Sandra and Barbara and, and, and Julie and, and, and E.V. Each one of you um, has this beautiful um, individuality, um, this beautiful uniqueness. Um, this beautiful way that you image God in a way that no one else can. And so there is something true about the Western idea of being a quote unquote individual. But where we often miss it in the West is that we think of ourselves as these buffered entities who are not connected to each other. And here Paul says, absolutely not. Individually, we are members one of another. And so there's this deep connection, this mysterious bonding between us. Um, in South Africa, they have the term Ubuntu, 
which means my humanity is bound up with your humanity. Um, this is not identical to what Paul is talking about in Romans 12, but it is a similar concept that, um, that our identities um, are, are not as separate as we tend to think and that we are all members of one body and that actually we can't thrive without each other thriving. And we don't understand that in our culture. I actually, you know, believe, um, or, or on my bad days, I believe that I can thrive without you thriving. But that's actually a lie. Um, individually, we are members one of another. There's only one body of Christ. And here, as Paul kind of begins his great section of the letter that we might call ethics, he begins appropriately by saying, there is individuality, but you're also members one of another. And until you're able to see that and to respect, honor, appreciate the differences, there's really no conversation to have. So that's going to be his foundation. So I'm going to go ahead and stop there and let's dive into what's stirring within you as you read Romans 12. Verse nine, let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good, Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heat burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. So before reading this passage, Martha kind of threw out the question as we were talking about the identity markers of Judaism at the time Romans was written uh, and how some of those were kind of uh, set aside uh, with baptism into one body, she raised the very perfect question of, you know, what exactly is an identity marker for the church, and how can it be particular enough to be called an identity marker, but at the same time um, be inclusive and welcoming of the entire world? How can we walk that paradoxical reality and um, I think here Paul um, answers that with the word love, the Greek agape. Um, love is the identity marker of the church. There's that great song, um, they will know we are Christians by our love. And so love is both that which uh, identifies us um, and at the same time, what Paul says about love in a different epistle is that love hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. Love, by definition, has open arms and is outward seeking. And Paul really defines what this love is. It's not hallmark love. It's not mere sentimentality or good feelings. It's not tribal love, where 
We love people who are just like us, who think like us, who vote like us, who dress like us, but it is a, a form of love that can hold together the difference Paul has been speaking about in the first eight verses. And, you know, Paul talks about outdoing one another and showing honor, about having a zeal for God, um, about rejoicing and hope and being patient and suffering and contributing to the needs of others and being hospitable. Um, this is what love looks like, right? These, these are not different concepts than love, but what love actually looks like. And it even extends to blessing those who persecute us. Uh, I think this is a good reminder that the first Christians did have those who persecuted them, who wished to do them harm, and who sometimes succeeded. And in verse 20, Paul says, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Jesus said something similar when he spoke about loving your enemies and praying for your enemies. And so here Paul is saying something very congruent with Jesus's own teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I want you to pay attention to verse 16, where it says, associate with the lowly. Um, and so we've been talking about the main kind of distinction in the church as being between Jew and Gentile, and that is certainly informing Paul's epistle to the Romans. But one of the things we know from Paul's other epistles were that that was not the only division, right? You had the divisions between rich and poor. And here, Paul's probably reminding some of the um, Christians at this assembly that those traditional class distinctions have been removed and are no longer relevant in the body of Christ. And that in the same way that Jesus emptied himself, took the form of a servant to associate with lowly human beings, that as we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, that we are to exhibit that same pattern, to associate not just with people with status and money and wisdom and all the accolades, but to go out of our way to associate with the lowly, um, that this is an essential part of love. And then finally, in verse 18, he says, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Um, I think it's very important that we just name so far as it depends on you. You know, sometimes you can do all the right things. You can um, make sure that you do everything on your part to have an environment of peace, but sometimes it just doesn't work. And so um, the only thing we're asked is to do our part. So far as it depends on us, we are to seek peace. But of course, that seeking of peace means that we never think that vengeance or kind of getting our enemies uh, is our work, that that is just not something we are to do, but we are to pray for them, we are to feed them, and we're to do everything we can in order to work for peace. And so as we think about uh, what it means to love, right? Um, really two things I take away from the second half of Romans 12. On the one hand, I think of all the things that Paul talks about, it's about hope, it's about persevering, it's about having a, a zeal for serving God, uh, it's about associating with the lowly. But I, I want to bracket out separately Paul's words on doing everything we can in order to make sure there's peace. Um, not the, um, the peace of our culture where 
we smile and pretend everything's okay when, you know, down here we're boiling over with resentment and hatred and, and we gossip about people behind their back. But uh, the sort of peace that is willing to lean into hard conversations, to hard moments, that's certainly what Paul's doing here at the Church of Rome. Um, but ultimately, the difference that Paul uh, is honoring might lead to some healthy tensions, but it's not meant to lead to an existence where there is no peace. And so part of what Paul is kind of pointing us to is the possibility of a world where difference can be honored and peace can be present. And that whenever we do this work collectively, that's what it means to be the body of Christ. But that raises the question, how do we get there? And that's when we go back to verse one, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? We can't go to the law. We can't go to some exterior code. We have to go to the vision of Jesus's sacrifice that we reenact as his body. And um, ultimately, Paul says, that's the first step towards the peace of God that in a different epistle, he says, surpasses all understanding.